0: You thought I was joking, but I am not joking. We have a New Year's message straight from the 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, for many of you, this is your first, because this is mine. For others of you, most of us, it will also be our last. That you will probably hear on the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. Now, here's what's at stake in this particular message. What's at stake is there... Is there a New Year's message for us, or is there only a New Year's message for a specific, yet undefined, unidentified, yet-to-be special 144,000 Jewish remnant? In other words, is this particular part of Scripture, does it have a message for you? Does it have a message for me? Does it have a message for the church, or does it have a message for that unspecified but very specific Jewish remnant that's supposed to come sometime during the Great Tribulation because during the Great Tribulation, they're going to look around and they're going to see that all the Christians are gone. Because all the Christians are gone because they've been raptured out. Remember the unmanned vehicles and the unmanned school boards and the unmanned homes and the unmanned kitchens and the unmanned coaches and the unmanned ballplayers? They're gone. And the Jewish remnant will be converted to Christ during this great tribulation because they're going to realize something's happened here. The church has been raptured. And so they need the sealing of God during this tumultuous time of the tribulation. Or is that a wrong interpretation of Scripture and that the message is actually about sealed saints from every nation and every tribe from the beginning of the first coming to the end of his second coming. That's what's at stake. Just minor things, minor moments, minor realities. Now, today there are warning labels for everything, right? You can get a warning label for medications. Dr. Tandy's not here, so I will poke fun at him. I got a sinus infection, so I called him and I thought I was going to come in and see him. He said, no problem, Jeff, I'll phone it in. So he phoned in an antibiotic. I took the antibiotic and the next day I went for a run and I got about two miles and at about two and a half, I felt this slight uh, fire in my Achilles and about 10 steps later, I couldn't walk. I thought that's funny, but I was told that this antibiotic, you need to drink lots of water. So I thought I was dehydrated and drank lots of water. And the next day, made it through that day. The next day, I'm walking out to my car, and the fire shot from my Achilles up to the back of my leg. Couldn't move. So I called my wife. I told her about it. She got concerned, and she grabbed the warning label on the back of the antibiotics, and it said this can cause, I don't even know, the itchuitis thing, but it had an itis attached to it that would affect your tendons in some people, but it's very rare, right? (laughs) So, of course, thanks, Jim. He gave me that, but there are Warning medications, there's warnings on, on foods, and there's warnings on television, there's warnings on video games, there's warnings for bubble baths, there's warnings for everything. So I thought I'd give my warning for this particular sermon. Caution, this sermon may cause distress to your view of Israel as a people and as a place. Caution, this sermon may create a crisis in your current view of the end times. There's my warning label. So now that we are hopeful and happy for the coming new year, let's ask God to bless the hearing of his word. Oh God, we do ask. We do ask that you would speak and we do ask that you would make clear this particular passage and its meaning of the 144,000. Paul told Timothy to think hard on these things. For God will give you understanding in these things. And so, Lord, would you give us, by your Spirit, the ability to think hard this morning? And while thinking hard, you're working through that thinking hard. You're working through that reasoning over the Scriptures. You're working through that to give us understanding. And why, Lord, would you do this? So that we see you rightly, so that we see ourselves rightly and so that we live for the glory of God more truly. And so, Lord, we ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This is part two, actually, to a part one that happened, and the title is, you see in your bulletin, is What Happens to Me in the Great Tribulation? Part one was a couple of weeks ago, and in that part one, we looked at a very crazy idea. We looked at a crazy idea that's so crazy, it's actually not the popular and most held view in the church today. What we said two weeks ago is so crazy that it's not even known mostly in the church today. In fact, the most popular view and the most widely held views are the exact opposite of what was said two weeks ago. But I do want to say this, kind of as a parenthesis, what this crazy idea that I'm going to say in a minute, it used to, it used to rule the day in the church. It had a glorious history, but as since in present day, it has fallen into a a decrepit, old, antique view of the scriptures. And I think it's lost its present status or its present status is weak, I think because it lacks a lot of the, the Hollywood lights that come with certain other views. And I think, too, it lacks, it's too normal. It's too unexciting. It's too plain Jane, this interpretation we're going to look at. I think as well it's too depressing for most of us. Why? Because we're not going to get pulled out of the rapture. That's why. So here's the view. The great tribulation is already upon you. Forget about a rapture. That's the truth. That's the weird idea we looked at two weeks ago. The great tribulation is already upon you. Forget about a rapture. Now, we saw this in Revelation 1.9, if you just want to look there to make sure I'm, I'm on the up and up here. And 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner, what? John is saying he's a partner with you, the seven historical churches, in the tribulation. So for John, the tribulation was, was happening right now. And he also likens the kingdom of God, patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. I was on the Isle of Patmos. So for John, the Great Tribulation was taking place. We saw this also as the point of chapter 5 and chapter 6. Remember, in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we see these incredible pictures. Chapter 5 and chapter 6, or actually 4, 5, and 6, are the centerpiece of the whole universe. As we come to this new year and we wonder, you know, what's in the center of the universe? What does the universe turn on? Well, it turns on Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. The one who sits on his throne is the center of the universe. And the picture in all the scriptures is that heaven and earth is his palace. And he reigns over heaven and earth. That's the centerpiece. That's the the most vivid picture of reality That you'll ever know and it's from that reality and from that light as the psalmist says that we get light that we get understanding that we get reorganized and reformed and put back together and our minds renewed when we come face to face with this centerpiece of the universe we think rightly and we live rightly that's the point of the book and that's why the book is at the centerpiece here now In chapter 5, the reason why we know it's a great tribulation is because it's the ascended and resurrected Christ getting crowned. Chapter 5 is the lion of the tribe of Judah in his crowning ceremony. He's king, right? And the question that comes out of chapter 5 is, if you are king, why is there still misery and violence and sin and pain and suffering in the world? And the answer comes in chapter 6 through the seals. The seals show us that the kingdom of God comes in three stages. In chapter 5, it comes for you, outside of you, objectively accomplished and secured by the lion lamb. The one who slaughtered. So it's done. The kingdom has come for us in Christ, chapter 5. In the first four seals, or the first even five seals, we see that the kingdom of God breaks in imperfectly. The kingdom of God, as Voss would say, is an age of the church. It's the age between the first coming and the second coming. It's the kingdom of God that breaks in by the word and the gospel and is responded to by faith in believers, by believers in the church. And so the kingdom of God is intruding or it's pressing in upon us Here, but not yet. That's why our catechism question, we still have sin that remains. It's an age of sanctification. It's an age of tribulation. It's an age of humiliation. It's an age of waiting for home. Stage two. But then we get to seal six. What do we find? We find this massive earthquake, skyquake, as everything gets twisted and turned upside down. And we have the initiation of the end of the age. We have the initiation of the final end time events, which will be the destruction of this present heaven and earth, the arrival, the appearance of the Lord Jesus, the final judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. Stage three, or what Voss, the great theologian, would say, the age of glorification. So the answer is, the great tribulation is the age that we all live in right now. It's the age between Christ who has come for us and is now reigning in heaven. Why is there still evil, violence, and wickedness? Because we live in the age between His first coming and His second coming. The age where He breaks in by word and spirit, responded to by faith. He works in His people, but we're not home yet. And then finally at the consummation, the kingdom comes finally and fully with us as we're taken into the new heavens and new earth. Okay, So the great tribulation is not an end, the war of the worlds like event. The great tribulation is the normal Christian life. The great tribulation is the age in which we all live in right now. It's an age of suffering. It's an age of Pain. It's an age of imperfection. It's an age of groaning. It's an age of longing because we're not home yet. That's the tribulation. Okay? Now I know, again, Ross, I'm glad you're here because last time I was here I said you had that saying where Paul Settle could step on your shoes without messing up your shine. I know this is a, this is stepping on some shoes because again this is not the view you and I have grown up with. This is not the view that dominates the church today. So be patient with yourself, just as you're patient with me. All right, <laughs> all right, all right. Where am I here? All right. So the normal Christian life is the great tribulation. It's a life and it's a call of suffering, and then it's a pattern of the gospel, is it not? And that's where all the these suffering passages in Scripture find their ultimate reference point in, is that the pattern of the gospel is that Jesus, the king, humiliated himself. And he lived a life of suffering. And then he was exalted to glory. The church will follow. We weren't immediately, when Jesus assumed the crowning kingship of the kingdom of God, he didn't take the church immediately to the consummation. It comes in stages. And so this stage we're in now is called the tribulation. And then it's all over. And then full application of what he's already had done. Now remember, his work for us is done. The application or the fruit of that work is what we're all experiencing now and what we will all experience finally and fully at the consummation. These aren't separate works. One work being applied, okay? Now, this is why God's sealing you as his very own prized possession in verses 1 through 4 is so powerful. Those of you that were here, we saw that great picture of what's taking place here. There's a great sealing A sealing that God does is He seals His people, and what He's doing there is that He's putting a brand or a stamp, and that's why the language here is of a slave or servant. I mean, look at the language. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants, verse 3, of our God. Literally, servants means slaves, and notice where they're being sealed, on their foreheads. The picture again here is what would do to a slave or a servant is you would brand them and stamp them, ownership of the owner on the forehead it could be a tattoo it could be a literal seal or brand but they're sealed and what god is saying is so important for us to see is that during this tribulation time during the time between the first coming and the second coming you're not left alone you're not forgotten and left to the wolves you're sealed and you're sealed as god's property And being sealed as God's property, what it says is to all the demons and darkness and distress and tribulation and destruction and the dark horsemen that are coming, it says to them, hands off, she's mine. She's mine. He's mine. Hands off. That's what the seal does. It marks you as God's prized property and possession. And so it says that to those outside of you. What it says to you and me is it says, I am God's who or what can be against me. I'm God's who can be against me. What can be against me? And the answer is nothing. Right. So this is very, very important. If you believe and you trust in this power and the trueness of God's seal for you, that you're his property, if you, if you get this, if this, this truth actually becomes beautiful to you, if this truth actually becomes true to you and works itself in your mind and in your heart, you put a mountain under your feet amidst all the marshmallows. You actually stand on a solid mountain Amidst the marshmallows that are claiming your refuge and the marshmallows that are saying, stand on me, you'll find refuge and strength here. And you stand that I'm God's and there's nothing that can be against me. Okay. And so if we begin to stand, and that's what John's trying to do, or that's what the Lord's doing through this vision to the churches, he's putting before them what mountain is to be under their feet amidst all the marshmallows that the world is saying to stand on. You're sealed as God's property. All right, so that was all last sermon. So you that missed it, here you have it. You got it. This is our plan today. It's to say one more crazy thing. Just saying one more crazy thing after another. And what you want to think of this sermon is as a parenthesis. Because in order for us to fully grasp the power of the reality that God seals us, we have to be firmly convinced that we're the ones being talked about in the 144,000 and not a Jewish remnant. And so what this sermon is about is proving that it's, it's sealed saints, not Jewish remnant in the 144,000. And then we'll wrap up with final implications of it, okay? I realized I had two sermons this morning, so I cut it down to one. Here it is. The crazy idea I'm going to say is that the 144,000 are not a specific sealed Jewish remnant. The 144,000 is not a specific sealed Jewish remnant. Now hold on, it gets worse. Verse 4 is not meant to be read literally. I know, I know, I just said it. Hold your breath, breathe, it'll be over with in a minute. Now let's prove it. It's not meant to be taken literally. The 144,000 is a symbolic number. Look what's taking place here. It comes from 12,000 times 12,000 or 12,000 squared times 1000. What's happening here is that 12 is a number of completeness. It's stressing completeness. It's stressing whole. It's stressing fullness. It's stressing perfection, much like the number seven does. It's a complete number. And so you have 12 of the 12 tribes and then it, you can multiply it, square the perfect number, completeness, squared to completeness, times 1,000, which is another complete number, and you get completeness, completeness, completeness. That's the point that's supposed to be illustrated here. It's a symbolic number of saying that the number of saints, of God's people, that come out of the first coming and the second coming, the number that come out here is complete and perfect, and God knows each and every one of them. No one falls out. I know my sheep, Jesus says. I lay my life down for my sheep, Jesus says. Because the Father has given them to me. So the 144,000 are Jews and Gentiles and Americans and Iraqis and Kazakhs and Uzbeks coming out of. The great tribulation, right? It's a completeness, again, of those that God has sealed and stamped. What's happening here in picture or symbolism is what Paul states in proposition, which we saw in Ephesians 1. What's happening here is Ephesians 1.3, where God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So the emphasis here that's taking place, there's 144,000 coming out. And it's the whole and complete number that God knows and God has sealed. It's the complete and full number of the people of God from all nations and all tribes coming out between the first coming and the second coming. It's emphasizing not only individually and personally is that he knows you and he seals you and he's personally attached to you and he's committed himself to you, but he's also corporately, he knows the full number. It's the group, it's his people that he leads out in triumphant procession. All right, I know some of you are still not convinced. That's all right, let's keep going. The 12 tribes listed here are symbolic. So the first is the 144,000 as a number is symbolic. The 12 tribes listed here are symbolic. There is no list of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament that matches this list. So those of us that want to press it literally, those of us that says it's a literal translation, those of you that want the the literal one-to-one correspondence, you can't find it here. Because these 12 tribes that are listed here in this passage, there's no no list in the Old Testament to collaborate the evidence found here. Every time these 12 tribes are listed in the Old Testament, they do not line up and match the way they're listed now. So something's happening with the numbers. Something's happening with the order. Okay? Well, what I'm saying next is stolen from New Testament scholar Christopher Smith, so I'll give him the credit here. What's happening here is this list in Revelation is doing two things. It's Gentile heavy and it's whitewashed. It's Gentile heavy, which means that it's infusing, it's inserting Gentiles into the list for a very specific reason to show what the church is made up of. But it's not just inserting Gentiles and emphasizing them and putting them at the top of the list, but it's also whitewashing it. Those that are a people of God, those that make up the community of God, are a redeemed people, a cleansed people, a whitewashed people. So every tribe from the Old Testament reality that brought shame on God's name is left out. Isn't that interesting? Why? Again, if it's symbolic, there's a very important reason why. If it's literal, we're swimming in the data, and who knows what it means. Okay? Now, for example, here's the first one. Judah. Notice Judah's at the top of the list. Verse 8, or verse 5. Judah went from the fourth position to the first position. Why did he do that? Because he's being whitewashed. Judah was not a stellar character, was he? Remember, Judah, he had three sons, and his first son was married to who? Tamar, his first son, it says, was wicked and God struck him dead. Now, the duty of the second born is to continue the seed of the first born. So Tamar was given to the second son and this son was said to be wicked and he was struck dead. Now, Judah knows all along that his line is where the lion of the tribe of Judah is coming from. His line is where the Messiah is coming from. So does he walk by faith? In the Lord, that he will provide for him an heir that will continue the line in which the Messiah will come from? Well, when he gets to his third son, and Tamar's supposed to be given to her, he, he goes from faith to superstition, and he thinks it's Tamar's fault. That there's something about her that his first two sons are getting knocked off for and so he says, well, let's wait till the third child grows up a little bit Tamar, before you can marry her. Right, is what he's thinking. So he walks in unbelief now, doesn't he? But Tamar, a Gentile, believes the promises. And so she goes out because she knows the stellar character of her father-in-law is that he likes women. And he likes to act married to women that aren't his wife. And she dresses up to the kind of person he likes. And they come together and the line continues. Isn't that interesting? So God rules over sin to bring salvation for a nation and a people like us. Right? Okay, so he's not a stellar character, but he's promoted from fourth position to first position because he's whitewashed because the Messiah's line comes through him. The line of the tribe of Judah comes through him. He is the first line, so he had to move up. But notice also that Reuben is demoted from first position to second position. He's demoted because of his sin of incest. So he's knocked down. So all firstborn rights, all firstborn privileges are lost as he's demoted, whitewashed. Now we get to Gad, Asher, Naphtali are promoted from the end of the lists in the Old Testament now to the beginning. Now, who was Gad, Asher, Naphtali? Again, you know who these guys are? They're Gentiles. These are the children of the slave servants of Leah and Rachel. Remember Jacob? He had his favorite wife, Leah. I mean, Rachel, and he had another wife, Leah. They weren't getting many sons from his lovely wife, Rachel. So she gives him a servant, and he has children. And these are Gentile servants. So these are half Israelite, half Gentile. And same with Leah. She gives servants because she wants to compete with Rachel, and she finally starts getting sons. And their servants are Gentiles. And they have Gentile, half Israelite, half Gentile children. And it's these folks that are pushed up into the beginning of the list to emphasize again that the people of God are made up of people like these. Okay, the last one is Manasseh, and this is both a gentle Gentile highlighting and whitewashing another Gentile from Joseph. Remember, Joseph married an Egyptian and this was his child and he's inserted and notice that he takes the place of Dan. Dan should have been in that spot in the old list, but Dan's removed because Dan, the tribe of Dan, is what led the northern kingdom into apostasy, whitewashed, eliminated. All right, here's what the scholar says, I think kind of sums up well. Thus, the order of the tribes in Revelation 7 symbolizes the reign of Jesus. It starts with the lion of the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, the, and it symbolizes the incorporation of outcasts, these Gentiles inserted, and the exclusion of idolaters from the covenant community that God shields from his terrible wrath. And that brings us to the last point about 12 being a symbolic number. Here it is. Twelve being a symbolic number is what matches the context. Remember in chapter 5, in the last seal, in chapter 6, go there and look, when the day of the wrath of the Lamb comes upon the unbelieving world, what do the unbelieving world ask? Here's the question. Who can stand? Who can stand before God's wrath? Who can stand before a holy God? Chapter six is here. Are the ones that can stand? Here's the answer. Chapter six gives us the answer, or chapter seven gives us the answer in two pictures. In one through eight, we're getting the picture of those that can stand that are on earth. The end of the chapter nine to the end of the chapter seventeen, we're given a picture of those who can stand that are in heaven. The ones that can stand on earth are those that are sealed. The ones that are sealed are the only ones that can stand. And the ones that are sealed is because they stand on the slaughter of the Lamb. And that's why when we get to this heavenly view, if you look at verse 13, the elder asks the question and answers it for us. He says, who are these people? And John says, you know. And the elder says, what? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The only ones that can stand are the ones that are sealed, and they're sealed because they've been washed in the slaughter of the Lamb. And then that's the ones on earth, is the ones that are on earth, and they're walking through this tribulation, and they're walking through this time between the first coming and the second coming. Who can stand? Who can stand against God's wrath? Well, these can. These ones that God sealed can stand. And that's what's called the, the church militant, because it's the church between the first coming and the second coming, because it gives us a picture. If you read the book of Numbers, the Israelites are ready to go into the promised land, remember? and as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, God says, organize the tribes according to these numbers and organize them militarily. Get them ready to walk into the promised land I'm about to give you. And so if if you and I are an Old Testament reader, when we get to these symbols of 12 and the symbol of 144,000, the complete number, what we see, we're being organized to enter into the promised land. Because one through eight is the church that lives now. that's about ready to enter into the promised land of nine through 17, which is the heavenly perspective of where we all go. So we live now on the edge of the promised land and enter into the promised land. You see what's happening here? So in this whole chapter, the first part of the chapter is about the church as it's seen from earth. Those of us that, like us, we're struggling and we're living in this age between the first coming and the second coming, but we're sealed as gods. That's the first perspective. We can stand is the answer to those that are asking it in seal six. What else? Well, though we get to nine, we see that these are the folks coming out you died saints, now saints that die, and they're now in heaven. From a heavenly perspective, the ones coming out of this tribulation, they're in the heavenly perspective, where in the earthly perspective, they can stand because of the slaughter of the Lamb. There's the answer, okay? All right, are you with me? Lots of data here, hang in there. All right, the last proof that the 144,000 is not a specific sealed Jewish remnant is the controlling idea of Revelation. The controlling idea of Revelation is not what happens to Israel, but what happens to the church. The idea that Revelation's turning on is not, what's going to happen to the nation of Israel? That's not the question of the book. The question of the book starts out with, what's going to happen to the church? Remember, the first vision that's given in the book of Revelation is the Son of Man, the exalted King, walking amidst, The church, the seven churches, but he's in heaven, so it's a heavenly perspective. And he's walking amidst the churches and he's tending to the faith of the flame of their faith. He's making sure this faith of his people does not go out. He's tending to their wicks. He's trimming back the stems. He's putting more oil and fuel into the lampstands. That's the picture, just like in the temple. He's walking in heaven, tending to his people. And the question is, as the churches, those seven historical churches are asking, amidst all this persecution that we're experiencing, what's going to happen to us? And God says, John, here's my answer. I'm taking care of my own. Okay? It's not, nowhere in the book of Revelation are Jewish believers mentioned alone. Nowhere. If they're mentioned, they're mentioned in the context of the Gentile church, not as Jewish believers of a nation apart from the church. Okay? In fact, throughout the New Testament, the church is referred to as the new or true Israel. Remember that? Just a couple passages, Galatians 3.29, so it's just the opposite. If we're trying to look for what's taking place here, how can there be such Old Testament language in the New Testament? The answer is the New Testament has a great precedent for it. In the New Testament, the New Testament borrows the language and the pictures of the Old Testament and brings them into the New because it assumes meaning already there, but it's a, it's a skeletal meaning that's filled in when it comes into the New Testament. right? So we get things like Galatians 3. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. You get a passage like Romans 2.29. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit now what was the common thought again in israel what was the common thought even in the church today a jew is one by nation circumcision on the outside we do it today and paul says no that's not what a real jewish person is it's one who's circumcised on the inside by the heart by the holy spirit so, even our categories need some realigning today, don't they? All right, and you get to a passage like 1 Peter 2 9, and it's just overtly borrowing references in the Old Testament used to Israel and now giving them to the church. The church is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Okay? So, why is the church described in Old Testament or Jewish like language? The answer is found in Revelation 21, 12 through 14. Let's look at it real quickly here. I'm running out of time. And what we have here is the new heavens and the new earth. We're now in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the context. We're in the new Jerusalem. This is the better Jerusalem. The first Jerusalem didn't last. This Jerusalem is here to stay. The first Jerusalem had heaven and earth meet. But it wasn't a permanent meeting place because the faithfulness of the nation was imperfect. They did not obey. The kingdom was divided. Heaven was pulled up into heaven again until heaven came down in the Christ, the true temple. Right? So we have this picture now of the new Jerusalem, the one where heaven and earth are one. Finally, heaven and earth are together. Finally, forever. No more exiles. No more captivities. No more being run out of the kingdom of God. Right? It's permanent. And in this permanent, notice what's happening here. Notice what it says on the gates. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates, this is verse 12, the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Now, that's the gates. Now let's go to the foundation. What's written on the foundation of this New Jerusalem. What do we have? The 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Do you see what's happening here? According to the Bible, there's a unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. According to the Bible, the summarization of how God revealed himself was through a nation called Israel. The summary of Revelation in the Old Testament was through a nation called Israel, and they're written on the gates. And the New Testament summarizes the revelation that God gives to his people through what? The twelve apostles. And the underlining theme is, it's one story. It's not two separate stories and two separate plans. It's one story, because they make it in the end, right? They're all together in the end. So why is the church described in Old Testament or Jewish-like language? Because there's one story of a slaughtered lamb who saves one people, not two people. There's one group that trusts in the complete obedience of another. There's one people that trusts in the cross of a slaughtered lamb. There's one people that trusts in the crown of an exalted king. One people, one group. There's one people and one group that conquers. There's one people and one group that's sealed. There's one people and one group made up of Iraqis and Americans and Jews and Gentiles and men and women and slave and free and old and young. One people. And it's called the church. Okay? Now, to understand this a little more fully here, the Old Testament provides the stick figure pattern not the perfection. In other words, what the Old Testament is doing for us is it's providing the skeletal reality of what the kingdom of God is like. It's providing the skeletal framework, the imperfect stick figure of what the perfection will look like, what the superhero will look like. And so the Old Testament, the revelation in the Old Testament and the talk of the Old Testament language in Israel, they were only meant to be the skeleton. They were never meant to be the full-bodied, full-tissued, full-organed, full-skinned reality. The problem was, is that many thought they were supposed to be the full-bodied, full-skinned, full-organed, perfect reality. And many today think so, too. We know they weren't because there was a dividing of the kingdom. And we know they weren't because Jesus is the perfection and Jesus is the superhero. Jesus is what all the skeletal realities were pointing to, okay? And so what happens is this. When I was in Russia, Soviet Union in 86 and in 91... Most of the churches there, Russian Orthodox, were beautiful buildings, but they had pipe and wooden scaffolding all around them, always in repair, always being fixed up, a new steeple replacing a broken down one, a whole building and windows being replaced all the time. When I went in 86, the same cathedral Russian Orthodox church was being worked on. When I went in 91, they were still working on it. All over the place. Now, why were they doing this? Well, they're doing repairs, they're fixing, they're putting in new things. When when those churches are complete and the repairs are done and a new one's made, does the scaffolding stay there? No. The scaffolding's purpose was to bring in the new. The scaffolding's purpose is to build the building. The scaffolding's purpose is to replace the new with the broken down or the old. Israel's purpose is to build the church. Israel's purpose is that they're the scaffolding while God builds and constructs the perfection of what he's been working on and that is the church from Jew and Gentile and all nations and all tribes. Now some of us will think at this point, well does this mean Israel or the Old Testament is less than the New Testament? And I'll answer it this way. Some think so and some actually do this in their practice because we don't preach and teach and we don't read and we don't study the Old Testament. Some think all we need to do is study the New Testament. Look, if this is the perfect, if this is the superhero, if this is the full realities and these are only skeletons and patterns and shadows, why study them? Why read them? Why preach them? What value is there in them? And my answer to that would be something like this. How much do you need your skeleton to stand and move and get around right now? If I if I'm standing here and someone was to reach into my back like an alien, we've all seen the movies, and reach in and grab my spinal column and rip it out. What would happen to me? I'd turn into a pool of jello on the stage. I have no backbone. I have no strength. I have no movement, I can't stand, I can't function, I can't live. If you try to take out Israel and the Old Testament from the Bible, you're ripping out the central nervous system of the whole Bible. Wham! Splat! So the Old Testament and Israel... Though it's skeletal, it's central and foundational for you to understand who Jesus is. You can't know Jesus. You can't know the gospel. You can't know the church. You can't understand anything Christian without the Old Testament. That's what's at stake here. So some want to do away with the Old Testament. Kind of a Marcion type view in practicality, maybe even theologically. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's different from the God of the New Testament. Let's get rid of it. Some do think that way. Others of us, we get rid of the Old Testament by making it as if there's two stories going on in the Bible. And because we're not a part of that story, we have as nothing to say to us. You know what we have just did? We just did what Marcion did. We just took the Bible from the church and tore it into... Okay. All right. I got to end. Here's how we'll end. The applications here are very, very immense. You're sealed as God's very own possession. So there is a message for you in the 144,000, even if you're not a special Jewish remnant. The message is to you. You're sealed. I'm sealed. The church is sealed as God's prized possession. You take this message into the new year. You stand on that mountain under your feet. You let that infuse your heart and your life. I'm sealed as God's prized possession. I'm his. Who or what can be against me? And you take that into the new year because in this new year there are many things against you. Your own sinful nature is against you. People are against you. The world is against you. Your job might be against you. Your spouse might be against you. You are always going to have things against you because we're not home yet. So how do you stand, Christian? How are you going to make it? There are a lot of marshmallows saying, stand on me. But the 144,000 here says, stand on this mountain. You are sealed as God's prized possession. You're one of them. And it goes so far back that this sealing... And this grace and this for you goes so far back that it goes into eternity. He chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. He sealed you. It's so powerful and it's so deep that it's rooted in the cross of Christ. The slaughter of the lamb guarantees that you're sealed and it will never be taken off you. And then don't miss the power in the present. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 The Holy Spirit is said to come and seal you a deposit guaranteeing your future inheritance. So, right now in the present, you have the power of God's very own Spirit to help you walk in the tribulation, to enable you and empower you. And all of this is saying to you, saint, and it's saying to me, you're sealed, you're God's prized possession. You've been sealed from eternity because I've done it. I've known you, I've named you, I've claimed you. Hands off, she's mine. But also you've been sealed and the seal is so deep that this very imprint is the slaughter of the lamb on your head. You're washed in his blood. And then now in the present, it's so powerful and so real, he actually gives his very spirit to you to help you live now. Now that's a message for the new year. Thomas Chalmers was a powerful and prince of a preacher and pastor. He's from the Scottish line. Not all Scots are bad. He's from the Scottish line. He was a good Presbyterian. His grandson said this of him I love this man because he loves me so good. I love this man. Because he loves me so good. That's what God is putting forth to you in Revelation 7. He's showing you how good his love is for you. And now you can stand on that mountain. And because you're standing on that mountain, you can run in the new year for the glory of God. If you really get how good his love is for you, that He sealed you from the foundations of the world, He sealed you in the cross of His Son, and He sealed you presently now with His Holy Spirit, you have a mountain to stand on. And you can now run to the glory of God. Amen.